Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Hi, and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepard. Now, before we get to today's interview, which is a, a truly epic conversation about one of literature's great epics, the 1986 novel It, let's just recap a bit of news. Last month's guest, the mighty Paul Tremblay, has recently released two of his earlier novels, The Little Sleep and No Sleep to a Wonderland, through Titan Publishing. They're wonderful stuff, uh, very offbeat, and with that great Titan cover design that I love so much. And next up, the Firestarter film will officially start filming in Ontario next month with Zac Efron in the lead. Stephen King has sent them a message of love on Twitter, so we'll see how it turns out. As I'm sure Firestarter novel fans know, there is a great film in there somewhere, so we hope we can uh, hope we can see it eventually. Other than that, there's not much news. Uh, Stephen King's no- novel later has come out from Hard Case Crime, and we're looking forward to discussing that on the show soon. The TV adaptation of Lisey's story is still coming out at the beginning of June on Apple TV. And I'm definitely going to be talking about that adaptation of one of my least favourite King novels over the summer. But now to today's guest. Andy Stanton is an author who lives in North London. He studied English at Oxford, but they kicked him out. And this stroke of good luck put him on the road to fame and fortune as a creator of Mr. Gum, an anarchic curmudgeon in a series of best-selling children's books. I suppose apt that we should talk about King's best book about children, growing up and facing monsters, I suppose. As you can probably tell from the running time, Andy is passionate, verbose, funny, and incisive, so I took the opportunity to speak to him a little longer than usual. This is a real deep dive. So take our hands as we explore the darker side of Derry, Maine. Oh, and I just leave a big thank you to Stephen L. Parks, who was responsible for editing this behemoth. He's the best in the business. Thank you very much. Today's guest is Andy Stanton, and we're going to be talking about one of the... uh, the Mount Everest of the horror fiction, Stephen King's 1986 novel, It. It's one of my absolute favourites. It's uh, constantly tops the polls in terms of um, fan favourites, and it's pretty easy to see why, because uh, it's one of those books that everybody has their own favourite uh, loser. Everybody's got their own favourite monster. Everybody's got their own favourite dairy interlude, their own particular section of it. It really is... Uh, it's, it's a buffet. It's something for everybody. It's what Stephen King talked about when he said he wanted to get every famous monster involved in it, you know? So it's 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 a history of horror. It's a history of the film. It's a history of uh, the B-movie. And it's 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 everything. And it's how we react to these things as children, how we react to them as adults. And yeah, it's 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 a big old beast to look into. But like uh, eating an elephant, we're going to do it one bite at a time. But first, I'd like to ask my guest, Andy Stanton. I mean, I, I give everybody the choice of what book or film to talk about. What is it about it? that made you want to discuss it because it is a beast yeah well you've kind of just outlined all of the reasons <laughs> uh it, it, it's you know it's kind of it's god tier stuff isn't it and uh it's actually not my favorite sk book it's it's one of the two it's the probably the stand just edges it Mm-hmm. But I put, I put them both in a tier of their own. So you asked me what book would I love to talk about, and I kind of, 
I, I chewed it over and there's I could have chosen so many. And then I thought, well, it has obviously been done. I won't even ask that. <laughs> and then I remembered there's no such thing as stupid questions. So I said, you haven't done it yet, have you? And you went, oh, my God, no, I haven't. So I... I want to talk about it because there's so much to talk about because it's such a place to inhabit because you go into this book, you live with the characters, you live with the town. You know, it's it's a good example of one of those sort of cliche lines that you sometimes get about fictional works where you go, the town is as much a character as any of the other. But, you know, it really is with Derry. And um, it's it's one of my favourite cosy places to get thrilled and scared. So I keep coming back to it. Yeah, well, when, when did you kind of first uh, visit Derry? Were you, were you a kid? Because I think uh-huh. this is one of those books that you can visit at any point in your life and you're going to see it in a different way and interpret it in a different way. And for me, I read right. it when I was probably about 12. So for yeah, me, it yeah. was the book of my life. It was these kids were my friends. This was something I kind of was really into. But what about you? I read, I think I read it when it first came out. I was already a Stephen King fan by the age of about... 14 i think when my mum lent me the sk book she is reading on holiday and i can never remember i can never remember if it was skeleton crew or christine it may have been christine it was around that time i totally got into you know into that into that stuff because you know we'd go to like benedorm or torremolinos or something my mum would have these books and that that looked interesting to me from the cover whatever book it was but i i think if I remember right, I got it from W.H. Smith's when it was out, and it was one of the covers with – it was a black background with the drain and two little eyes poking oh, out yeah. of the drain, and we all, we all know who that guy is. And, um, you know, it's the I used to go into W.H. Smith's and scare myself with some of the covers, like Stephen King covers and James Herbert, and I couldn't I, – I was fetishizing these covers and sort of not wanting to look at them but unable to take myself – tear myself away. So I think I read it when I was about – 15. Mm-hmm. I'm now going to hold up the, the cover of the New English Library edition of it. That's the one. That because is this the is the one that I remember going to W.H. Smith in that, Waterlooville in Hampshire, and I'd read like a couple of pages at a time until they kicked me out and t- told me I couldn't come back. I, so, I remember reading, uh, I never re- I've never actually read a James Herbert book, but I remember reading the, ba- uh, the last chapter or so of The Rats true. by James <laughs> Herbert in W.H. Smith, and absolutely just, well, shitting myself up to be quite honest and uh and the weird thing about Stephen King was but was that because I knew his work although it was scary it was like it's fine because I can trust the guy telling me so I'm not I'm not as I'm not as terrified as who you know I don't know James Herbert I don't feel I know this guy Mm. so that 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 seems like a genuinely sort of supernatural scary artifact in the shop whereas with Stephen King I always know it's like my pal is telling me a story so scared as I might get and believe me, I did get scared, and I still do. I always felt like I was in safe hands, just like he tells us at the starts of his, you know, the intros to his books. Come, you know, come with me, constant reader. It's pretty dark, but I think I know the way. And there was always no, that kind of uh, veneer of coziness it. around it too. Yeah, you, you referred to it earlier as a, as a cozy book, and you know, I think that'd be quite a. It's quite a hard sell as a cozy book to some people because it is well astonishingly long, astonishingly yes. complex. And it does deal with kind of the ultimate taboo in in literature, which is the violent death of children. But I, I know well, what that you is mean. True. It is cozy for all of that. Well, there's a there's a lot of sentimentality in it as well, and a lot of warmth. And you know, it's about friendship as much as it's about 
you know, a bunch of other themes that are a bit darker. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you, D- Derry is a place where, you, you know, it, every in, uh, speech, speech marks room in Derry, every location, you feel like you, you just want to know more and more of it. It's a bit like Springfield in The Simpsons. It seems <laughs> to be whatever you need it to be at any given time. So yeah. actually the fact that it's long and that it's so dense with location and incident feels like a place to inhabit. So that does feel cosy to me. You know, it's a perfect book to read over a bunch of rainy afternoons, uh, especially the opening scene in The Storm, I guess. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I've read this or listened to it many, many times, and it is a place to which I return. So, yeah, I guess twisted as it is, it's my comfort zone. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you Whereas, remember? Po- Sorry? Sorry. No, 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 carry on. Oh, well, whereas what I I'm just, was just having flashbacks to one of the earliest Stephen King short stories that really did keep me up, which was Grey Matter oh, in yeah. Night Shift, That's which grim. is very much not my comfort zone and <laughs> absolutely just, yeah, that lost me some sleep. <laughs> so uh, do you, what, what do you remember about that first time reading it when you were about 15? I mean, was it like, um, because it is a book about childhood, could you kind of... Were you f- familiar with these kids, these archetypes, these people? Were you able to kind of... Because, I mean, it's kind of a hard sell to kids in England in the 1980s and 1990s, but you do feel connected to these kids in America in 1957, 58. It's, it's quite astonishing, really, it's able to bridge that. It's not surprising to me that you can connect with these characters because that's what a good storyteller does. I mean, uh, you know, I could collect... collect connect with Holden Caulfield in uh, Catcher in the Rye when I was a kid. I could connect with um, the characters in Of Mice and Men. I could connect with uh, Frank in The Wasp Factory. I was none mm-hmm. of these people. And, that uh, you know, you don't have to be that person. You don't have to have anything in common with somebody in a novel except that you relate to their them as a human being. And, um, you know, th- th- certainly what you said is true. If you're reading this as a young teenager you're only a couple of years ahead of the kids in the book. They're 12 anyway, so you can totally connect with that. But really what you connect with is the bonds between them. You feel like you're one of, you know, you're in the gang or you're at least privy to this very closed circle. You know, you're a kind of honorary uh, loser. (laughs) Honorary loser. But um, (laughs) No, I I never questioned it. It's one of the books, again, this and The Stand to me is uh, are the two Stephen King books that you go away from and you remember every single... uh, of the main characters' names and surnames. They're unforgettable characters. Now, maybe that is just because it's so long, and you just if you read Stu Redman 400 times in the course of a novel, you're going to remember the name Stu Redman. But it's not that, is it? It's the fact that they are very, uh, they're very well-drawn archetypes plus. You know, if, if you just make an archetype and you don't add anything to it, you've just got a cliche. But Stephen King is very, very good. It's like the first Star Wars movie, um, at, you know, um, A New Hope. The seventy, the good one, you know, the seventy-seven <laughs> one or whatever it was, uh, from the good old days, where like all of those characters are recognisable. You've got the young hero who's dressed in white and is needs to come of age. You've got the kind of rogue with a heart of gold. That's Han Solo. You've got, you know, the tough princess. Um, you know, she needs to be rescued, but she's also kind of a warrior princess herself. And all of these are really, really instant hooks. Mm into a story now if, uh, but they've they've all got enough of their own sort of uh, they, they've got enough of their own unique characterization as given by George Lucas in that case or Stephen King here 
to elevate them above that. So what you actually get is great characters, but drawn on very, very solid storytelling foundations. And that's what the losers are. Mm, and um, I'm, I'm just running my mouth here. So just virtually punch me in the face to shut me up. Dude. I'll, I'll just say beep, beep, whenever I want you to shut up. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, well, well, it's funny because, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I see a lot of Richie Tozier in me, yeah. What I was going to say, was there a particular character or archetype that you kind of identified with most when you were a kid? Were you a, were you a Richie? Were you a, were you a stuttering Bill? Were you a, I, um, a I'm probably I, I'm probably a mixture of Richie and Ben. I've always had a really soft spot for Ben. Mm. Uh, he, he's got a... Um, He's got a, a sort of dignity and a sense of self that I really admire. I don't think I've got so much of Ben in me as Richie, but I really feel very. I, I, he's a he's a really dignified character. I think less so in the movie, which we might talk about later. But the movie sure. doesn't count. It's the book with, it's the book <laughs> that I care about, and um, there's just something about his. Uh, you know, he he gets Beverly at the end, but. He doesn't. He doesn't impinge. Sorry, he doesn't. He doesn't push for for what he can't have throughout the book. He mm. and, and again, even when when you first see him as an adult in this story, that's one of my favourite scenes at the bar. And uh, he goes to Ricky's bar. Yeah, uh, out in um, Nebraska, isn't it? And um, kind of near Hemingford Home, uh, Gatlin, famous Stephen King location. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we get we get little nods to the stand and children of the corn, that's right. And um you see him go to the bar. He's just had the call from Mike Hanlon mm -hmm. telling him that uh-oh, something's back in Derry. I think we all know what it is. And uh th then we get this great series of seeing six of the characters response to those phone calls and Ben's is my favorite. Mm. He goes to the bar that he's been going to, he's a creature of habit. He's been, he goes to it every weekend, even when he's working in England, he flies back to the bar of a weekend and goes and patronizes it. And he talks to Ricky Lee, the barman, and he mm. says, Ricky Lee, something's come up. And that portrait of Ben as a very self-contained creature of a habit, he never dates anyone at the bar, although Ricky Lee, the barman, observes to himself that you know any woman would have been happy to have gone home with him sure. there's just something very quiet and sad and soft about him i think a little bit like linus out of snoopy <laughs> i equate him with no he, i think he's you're like right. a very he's a decent decent character who doesn't ask for more than he gets it's interesting about ben is that he's in pretty much every scene of the book but he's often kind of a background character and like i say he does give that kind of quiet dignity to everything he's not like a an upfront explosive character like Richie or Bill and who have very set roles of being the jester or the hero, but he's always yeah. there and he's always reliable. And that's why I like the fact that he's, he's kind of an architect is that he builds these, mm. these, these buildings, but it's, it's not him. It's just like this solid construction. That's not going to let you down. That's well, not work. funnily enough, he said, I was about to say that he feels, uh, He's he's one of the big cementing characters, and that wasn't meant to be a pun on architecture. But he he really yeah he really does sort of help cement the matrix of the losers. He's he he they they all they all have they all have a perfect place within the group. But Ben is yeah Ben is, is a he's a supporting and supportive character within the group. But he will come to the fore mm. like they all do, as and when his talents are needed. It's, you know it's a very skillful dynamic this is another reason 
or one of the core reasons the book is as good as it is, is because the the group of childhood friends and then adulthood friends are so they're so nicely painted and so they 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 complement and play off each other so nicely. It's just it's a great you know it's a very pleasing group of people to inhabit or to look in on. It does. It works really well. And like I say, going back to to Ben again, he's got one of I think one of the most poignant and beautiful moments in the book, which is. It's a big book, obviously, with big set pieces and big characters, but it's a little flourishes that I kind of remember when I'm reading this. And the bit where he's um, standing outside the library and he, he, he remembers looking into the glass corridor in the library and seeing people go back and forth between the main library and the children's library in that glass corridor and standing there and watching them and kind of imagining what it would be like to be like part of that. It's so beautifully written and so poignant and it gives you like this ache for the loneliness of this kid. Yes, the loneliness is. See, that's something I relate to in Ben. The loneliness, because I was a, quite a solitary kid and, you know, a big reader. And Ben is a big reader. Yeah. So that there actually is those parts of Ben that I've just realized talking about. This is great. It's like therapy. I'll be weeping in a minute. <laughs> but um, I. Uh, Could you put your trousers back on, please, Mr. Stanton? Thank you. Don't get too comfortable. <laughs> absolutely not sir uh that's a deal breaker i um no i uh, I, I relate to I, I relate to his he's a massive bookworm he lives mm-hmm. in the library he lives in his own head yeah. and you know that and and he's a very he's an incredibly thoughtful and considerate character i really like that mm. so, so some of he's very sensitive all of those things i have and then of course i've got the big beep beep trash mouth <laughs> runoff mouth of richie but um but actually it's um it's a funny book to talk about because we you don't know what way you're going to go into it. And here we are sure. starting off with Ben. But um, you reminded me of, you know, the glass corridor that links the mm. uh, chi- the child, uh, children's and the adult library is quite a big motif of the book. Well, th- th- it's a book that's got so many motifs. It's not a big motif, but it runs through very subtly here and there. But, of course, the more I've read that book, the more I've noticed that that is a perfect, perfect, it's, you know, it's almost too on the nose, but yeah. I forgive it because it's Stephen King and he can be on the nose and get away with it because he's, <laughs> he's earned the right because he liked the book so much. But, um, you know, it is a, it, it literally is a glass corridor that bridges the childhood world to the adult world. And at the end of the book, when, I mean, if you're listening to this and you don't want a spoiler, why are you listening to this? I was going to say, it's I'll called Constant Reading. Spoiler alert all, all the way, please. Yeah, yeah. If you I, haven't um, read it by now, just read it. What are you doing listening to us? Yeah. You've wasted lockdown. Yeah. So, you know, when the town gets destroyed by the giant ants, so that joke, <laughs> uh, when the town gets destroyed, uh, it, it, you know, in the sort of apocalyptic finale of this thing, mm. that that corridor between the two libraries is shattered. It, it's just, it, it's destroyed and it's never rebuilt. Mm-hmm. And that's a lovely, lovely, poignant thing. You know, it's that says something about the journey of the novel from childhood to adulthood and actually breaking the links of the past. I always get, I'm always really disappointed that, you know, it never got rebuilt according to the book, that the, yeah. uh, there would never seem to be money in the town meetings to, because I, but, but I think that it's actually a good choice from, Stephen King's point of view to actually cut through some of the syrup 
and actually say, no, something has been learned here. You have to break that link, actually, at some point between well, childhood and adulthood. Yeah, that's what the end of the book is is, is, is kind of about. It's the idea of, you know, you, you can go home, but then yeah. once maybe, but then you can never do that once. again. Yeah, Once and once only. But that's right, because again... And you go home to, it, to end what you had to do in childhood anyway. You, as the yeah, adult, you, put you go it, back and you redeem the child. You and put then it you, to bed. That's it. Exactly, yeah. It, Exactly. That's right. And then the fact that the, um, you know, not only is the uh, the corridor destroyed forevermore, but the fact that the losers are going to forget each other mm. always. I, I find that, um, you know, I, 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 I like it, but I, I wish they knew. I, I wish <laughs> I wish it weren't so, but I think it's the smart choice. But it, it, it always kind of breaks my heart to think, uh, uh, you know, it's an intriguing idea anyway that... Uh, six people will never remember anything they've been through together. And I know I know it must have broken Stephen King's heart a little bit as well, because I think the last line of the book is something like, uh, you know, he, uh, relate, uh, says that Bill, Bill Denver remembered mm. his childhood friends only in his dreams. And that's kind of beautiful. But God damn it, it is like, it, it's like a film where they, you know, uh, where the romantic leads don't get together at the end. And I'm just like, ah! I know it's, it, but... it's, it's awfully poignant, but it does make you wonder about um, uh, Ben and Beverly because they're, they're together at the end of the book and they leave. Do they ever just kind of like sit back and say, Oh, uh, do you remember how we met? I'm like, uh, yeah, no. no they, I, I thought about this too. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. They, no, no, we, we, we went to a, a sewer and fought a giant spider. Do, do you remember that? No, no, I, I don't remember. No, that, not at know. all. No idea. I think it was maybe we just met in a, a Wendy's burger place or something, but uh, yeah, I. I, that that's right. I always hope that they stay together, but I, I I have to imagine that you know the supernatural powers that be have rewritten their memory cards for them, and yeah. that, that that you know you can imagine that you can imagine a novel following Ben and Beverly where it, it sort of says that you know if you'd asked them how they met, a puzzled expression would have crossed <laughs> you know both of their faces. Do you know what? That's the funny thing, but. I ho- I hope they stay together. At <laughs> Fingers least. crossed, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, going back to the idea of this novel being a, one of big set pieces, uh, was yes. there any particular that kind of stood out in your mind? I'm I'm not thinking in terms of the dairy interludes, but more about like the confrontations, because a few that always stick with me are, again, Ben meeting the mummy on the river, only because that's such an odd, desolate scene, with very well, little dialogue, I- and it's very atmospheric and it's really That's, creepy it's one of my again i'm you know i'm massively massive such a big fan of ben it's um it's one of my key scenes because it's it's the atmosphere and it's it's the it's the chill of the day against the kind of warm melancholy of it mm. and the sense of yeah this wonderful build-up where he's at the school and it's warm and it's safe and then he he has exactly. to go out in this in this cold environment where there are no adults and there's no parental right. supervision, and, no safety. And, and and the janitor's the janitor's words ring in his ears, be careful of the frostbite, son, as he walks <laughs> out into the cold night. And it, it really is so evocative of it's so so evocative of being at school in that uh, you know, that sort of sort of soporific musty oven of a building yeah you can smell that, you the know, chalk dust and the blackboards ca- and, yeah, you the can see the moats of dust held in the air yeah and then and then and then leaving to walk out to walk home you know 
on this case on a cold winter's evening but you know it, it it's so evocative to me of what school was and what what having to sort of go from that to being a, a kind of pedestrian commuter on your way back home on your own was and you know at that age what a weird thing to do to kids and then um <laughs> uh, yeah that, that that scene is a big one for me um other set pieces you want me to leave out the dairy interludes okay uh we'll get to now. that um, I really like uh, the, the mummy. The mummy is the one for me. Uh, mm-hmm. um, com- I mean, the, the, there, there are other ones like it. I mean, the standpipe and the dead boys with Stanley. I always think it's really creepy in a very understated, almost Mr. Jamesian kind of way. You know, because it's again, there's very little dialogue. There's no adults, and it's just the image of the dead kids. It's another one that really stands on its own. I mean, you know, in in some ways, this is like uh, there are so many great short stories woven into this yeah. novel, and you know, Ben's Mummy and Stan's Standpipe uh, are two of them. Um, the, so I, again, what I like about Stan's confrontation with it is that it's almost like the bonus ball. It's mm. almost like it, it almost it, it has something of Stan about it. It's weird in a way. You know, Stan is the least known of the seven because he doesn't make it to adulthood. Sorry, sorry, he doesn't make it back to the adult uh, dairy. Yeah. Um, and, he, you know, it, it, he's always painted as being the most unsure of them and the most aloof and the most unknowable. And even his confrontation with Pennywise at the standpipe seems to have its own kind of Stanishness about it. Mm. And it's funny to me, like, that you know, standpipe has the word Stan <laughs> in it. There's something very, there's something yeah. hard and kind of, kind of of its, of his self about Stan. Yeah, he's always described as being very ordered and neat and rigid, you know, just like, like you say that he needs that order. And that is what he doesn't have. That's why he kills himself, I think. Yeah, yeah, he, you know, he can't stand the kind of what's he call it an offence, a kind of abomination, a perversion against reality that Pennywise represents. But yeah, his um, his confrontation is really eerie. You get these dead boys, we hardly see them, but we just hear sort of sort of sloppy footsteps coming down the um, metal uh, staircase of this water holder, this standpipe, and. Um, and we hear and we hear the sounds of a fairground, uh, the Calliope, and we hear the Camp Town races, and it's really mm-hmm. eerie. It's just pa- it's very nicely done. It's just painted with three or four little images and ideas, and then stands, you know, battering at the door to get <laughs> out. And all he sees is kind of a couple of very hunched, elongated shapes, and yeah. nothing's quite right about them. And it, it's a, it really. That's one to keep you up at night. So yes, yeah, Stans and Bens are great. Um, obviously, the uh, so you um, have um, the confrontation at Nebo Street with Bill and Richie. I think first of all, going to to in the cellar, and then it's the werewolf. Yes, yeah, we we get right. We get two Nebo Street big showpieces. Mm-hmm. I mean, three if you count Eddie's, but not really. The, the, the showpieces are, are Richie and um, Bill. And then we get the whole gang later going back. But again, one of the many, uh, again, one of the many things I like about this book is how many times, it's always fun to watch different iterations of the losers together. So you sort of go, oh, again, it really thickens the soup. 
to sort of go, oh, yeah, um, sometimes Bill and Richie just hang out together. Great. <laughs> sometimes Richie, Bev and Ben hang out together. And you're always curious to see the losers when they're in subgroups. Yeah. And there's some, you know, I, I, I love that. I, every, every iteration of the losers from all seven of them together or just any two or any three together always feels like an interesting dynamic in its own way. So um, Bill because and Richie have... Value, valuable, aren't they? Sorry. They're all equally valuable. It's because Bill is nominally the hero, but they all have a part to play, which I think is really interesting. Oh, oh yeah, all, absolutely. But also, they all um, the, the conversations they might have with each other are, are different than when they have them all together. Yeah. It's like again coming back to um, Charlie Brown and Peanuts by Schultz. Like you know, you, you've got uh, you've got routines that they all have. Like so, um, in Charlie Brown, if it's Charlie Brown and Lucy, you might have Charlie Brown. Uh, trying to kick the football and she pulls it away or that, or you might see him at the psychiatrist booth. If it's Charlie Brown and Linus, they're going to be sitting on a wall being philosophical together. <laughs> right. And, and, uh, and then, you know, if there's three of them together, the dynamic will be changed again. And no matter who you're looking at, you're sort of going, Oh, I know these characters. I love just the, I just, you know, I love the scenes with just Bill and Richie because they sit, they, uh, their dynamic seems to be, it, it, Richie actually pushes Bill quite a bit mm -hmm. uh, to actually examine his thoughts a bit more, and to uh, and you, you, Richie and Bill together are, are a great team. They um they they actually get quite sort of have you know the teenage version of philosophical or lo logical discussions. They they reason things out together, and they decide that they should go to Nebolt Street and see see what Absolutely, happens because yeah. of. Ed is leper. So, uh, sorry, it's taken me a long time to say I just love watching those two guys together. But yes, they go to Nebolt Street. And yeah, yeah, no, I could talk about this one for weeks. And um, I. Uh, and that's why I like the fact that you get, um, you get uh, Mike and Richie in the smoke hole as well. Because Mike, I think, is often quite a marginalized character in this book. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then. And you don't really know much about him. Like Ben, he's quite a lonely character because he has this. Yes. Where he doesn't go to the same school. And of course, he black. Thank. And of course, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He he lives on a farm, which the others don't. He's he's kind of an outsider in a lot of ways. But when he's with Rich, uh, absolutely, he's kind of at the very centre of the mystery of it. I love it. You, I love it that you you you're totally expecting it to be Bill that gets the vision. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I think I think that it, I think at least one of the losers even has that thought. You know, they sort of. I think it was. I think it might be Richie who says something like. Um, you know, Richie thought that if anyone would see it, it, it would be Bill. But about yeah. that, he was quite wrong. You know, um, but yeah, that yeah, I'm delighted that it was Richie and Mike. That's mm. absolutely it. Because again, it just gives you 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 just you just lo you just want all the time. You long for all of these characters to have sort of rich experiences with each other, and you're delighted when it happens. And the yeah. I can't think of any better choice than Mike and Richie for that because it wasn't what you were expecting and it just feels delicious. Exactly. Um, and it also ties into their, because I mean, Mike is obsessed with the history of Derry and to actually exactly. see the beginning of it and the beginning of the township. And that's it, right. It's very and I think it, it has that experience. And then I wonder, and then for Richie, I think it's for Richie, it's something that probably sobers him up a bit. And actually, he, you know, he, he's the one who actually needs uh, to sort of get a sense of gravitas 
because he's such a, you know, what do they call him? A jack-off or a goof-off or whatever <laughs> they call him. But and uh, also he has not had, or he doesn't think he's had the, the formative well, he, that's experience. It. But he has. He's a bunion, crazy extreme, but he doesn't actually think it's real. So for him, that makes it real. Exactly. Richie's got a weird history in this book of denying things, which is a, it's a little streak. He doesn't do it all the time, but he does do it. He does do it with that formative experience. That always bugs me a bit. Yeah, uh, I don't fact, think it's a very uh, successful uh, sequence. I don't think it really works. I what the actual bunion bit? Yeah, it's it's one of the very few bits in the books that I don't in the book that I don't live in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that, and maybe the bit with Mike and the bird at the ironworks. And oh, I like, I like the bird character. very much. Oh, okay. But for me, it's uh, the Paul Bunyan sequence doesn't really makes it. It's too comical, or it's played maybe with an ambiguity that it didn't or did happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and like the fact that Richie doesn't in uh, doesn't own that experience. I don't see what it what it actually buys us or where where it goes that Richie has a, a streak of you know denial in him. Like Stan is that Stan is the one who can't take things and who tries to deny it, but it ends up too much with him. So it play for him. So it plays out with Stan, but with Richie, it doesn't particularly add anything. But anyway, I suppose I suppose I was just trying to justify him being in the smoke hole and saying that he needed to have something that he couldn't deny. But no, it's a fair point. Absolutely. The truth, but but the truth is, I don't I don't think his initial denial particularly is that interesting in itself. And yeah, the the bunion sequence does. It's just basically. It's just not. A, it's not a. Um, it's not a hole in one like most of the other sequences. I don't know if that's a cultural difference reading it you in know. the UK, but I actually on this reread, I actually did a Google image search of Paul Bunyan statues, and they are really bizarre looking things, and there are quite a few of them. And like I said, they're all these I... big, surreal, Robert Rauschberger looking kind of plasticky. Yeah, I can. Oh, I've always been able to. I, yeah, but I can. I've always got a sort of, even before the movies, a sort of vague picture of what that might be like in my head. I can understand the garishness of it and the sort of plasticity, but it's it's weird. It seems just not quite to inhabit the same, the same uh, super reality, supernatural reality of the rest of the novel. Like, is it? I mean, this is a weird thought, but is it like you can imagine? Pennywise interacting with a canal and being a shark, or you can imagine mm. Pennywise interacting with a haunted house, but you can't really quite get over Pennywise interacting with plastic. Is that? <laughs> it's it just doesn't. Uh, that's not exactly the thought, but there's something there's well, something about that sequence that just doesn't doesn't go in the hole, you know. On a basic level, maybe it's just because it's not a horror archetype. It's not like the Mummy. It's not a Dracula. It's not a werewolf. It is Paul Bunyan. And again, it doesn't have. It has like a folkloric, mythic kind of history, but it's not as scary or as ingrained as the fear of like a shark or the fear of even the creature from the Black Lagoon that gets um, uh, Eddie Cochran, I think, at one point. It doesn't have that. If I remember right, we don't get that bunion thing until Rich is an adult. It's hinted at. Yeah, he, when he's a kid, he kind of says, "Oh." What about that dream you had of Paul Bunyan? Oh but yeah, yeah. No, that wasn't. That wasn't it. That That's was right. But, yeah. but but actually, we get, I think we get all of the losers' initial encounters with it in the uh, in the childhood section, except for Riches. And it's not until he goes back to Derry and he's walking around town that he then remembers 
and addresses that Paul Bunyan thing. So what we get is a weird thing where we get him, as it were, well, we hear the story of his initial encounter right next to the replay of it as an adult encounter. And Mm -hmm. part of me has always thought that actually the main justification for having one character not tell their story early on is just so that you've just to have one less story and to save one for later so it's not completely <laughs> dense with, oh, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to... Yeah, so no, anyway, yeah, whatever. It's not getting too formulaic, perhaps. And like I say, it, it does. So, yeah, it does, back. but for, for whatever reason, it's never quite done it for me. But one of the, um, uh, uh, one of the subroutines in it, again, you'd probably call it a short story of its own, is Patrick Hockstetter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a creepy, um, creepy. That, when I was a kid, that bit really stuck with me because he was a child, it, but he was also deeply disturbed, even more than Henry Bowers is. Oh yeah, he's a sociopath. Mm. I think it's that's you can kind of relate to Bowers because he's like a school bully, and we all know what a bully is. But Hogsetter is something completely alien in a way. Yeah. Oh, oh, alien, but yet convincing. And, you know, I, I, I remember not knowing the word sociopath when I was a kid, uh, but even as an adult, it's hard to get your head around the idea of a sociopath. But what you do know is that it is, it's creepy and fascinating and you can't, your mind can't put Patrick Hockstetter's story down. It's so, it it's so, it's unnerving. It's just like the teachers at his school mm. who can't quite put their finger on what Patrick is. And they, they sort of, you know, feel uneasy about him, so sort of just let him go under the radar most of the time rather than <laughs> confront it. You know, that, that that is what sort of people tend to do with very, very, you know, unusual psychologists mm-hmm. like Patrick's. It, it's it's just a great it's just a great bit of again thickening the plot, adding, you know, adding yet another layer, you know, a, 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 another layer of sort of things you'd rather not talk about that come in the, under the realm of Derry. It's got so many interesting things. Um, I think, again, in the Hockstetter section, it, there's a line where it says something like, you know, the teachers sort of just let him get on with it because they, they couldn't tell you exactly what was wrong with him. And besides, you know, Delhi Elementary was a school like any other, a three-ring circus uh, that might have bewildered even Pennywise himself, you know, or <laughs> itself. But... Um, and that's right, you know, life, schools are three-ring circuses of many, many human interactions, and life is busy with... Life is crawling with weirdos and, <laughs> you know, assorted creeps and weirdos, isn't it, under the surface? And Patrick is one of Derry's finest, and it, everything about Patrick's section of the book is sort of horrible in a sort of tabloid way you know if you if you happen to catch sight of a horrible story mm. about neglect or abuse in a tabloid newspaper and you can't get it out of your head that's patrick's story right there you know he kills insects and later on he kills cats, cats and dogs yeah. and birds and and you know and he's sort of he's he's kind of got creepy liverish hands and yeah. he sort of feels up the girls at school and he's all you know he, he's really really in just a, ho- a horribly sort of convincing, over fleshy character. I think Beverly he's, describes him as sort of. He's always been look at like touching and licking and his lips. He's yeah, a, yeah. Actual, I think Victor, you know. 
I think that's it, liverish lips, I think, and he's quite sallow and kind of slow looking and um uh, and Beverly sort of feels always feels like there's it's like lifting up a rock and seeing the life <laughs> underneath is and that's Patrick Hockstetter. So you know, Derry is indeed a three ring circus and he's one he's one of its little um horrible sideshow freaks, you know. But I think that's the interesting thing about Hockstetter is that he is who he is without the need for Pennywise to actually, you know, affect him or influence him in any way. And this, Absolutely. this, this Pennywise character, this this monster that kills children, it's interesting that Hogstetter also kills a child without any influence, without any benefit. Do you know, I, or... have never, I have never made that connection. You're absolutely right. Well, it always reminds me of like You're right. near the beginning where he talks about how many people like go missing or run away. And he says, well, some of them probably did run away. Some of them probably did die. Yeah. Like, yeah, um, yeah. like the Cochrane boy, one of them gets killed by it, yeah. but the other one gets killed by his stepfather. Absolutely, and and that that bit, uh, it's it's another it's another really impressive subroutine in the book. Oh, you yeah. know, it's, it's yeah. told, it's mostly told through um, newspaper articles. It's like Carrie all over again. Yeah, exactly. But um, <laughs> it's it, it's a it's a really nice little. I mean, it's not nice at all. That's the wrong word. It's <laughs> a, it, it's it, it's a fascinatingly hideous subroutine in the book. But you're right. I hadn't. I just hadn't thought about Hockstetter killing his baby son, uh, sorry, baby son, his baby brother, um, whose name escapes me right now. But um, what's that kid's name? He's got a funny name. Anyway, Roddy uh, that's a Ray Brad. Yeah. S- sorry. Roddy or something like that? I can't remember. It's not Roddy, but it, it will come or it, or it won't. But uh, he, yeah, it's like a Ray Bradbury story. But what? Um, but yes, you're right. When Pennywise, I, I, I always like the little detail that when Patrick Hockstetter does meet his end, mm. At Pennywise's, you know, yeah. hands or or leeches, really. Leeches. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <not> <laughs> a he he end up at Pennywise's leeches. That's not a phrase, but um, when Pennywise <laughs> sort of comes to um, when when Pennywise sort of comes to collect on his harvest, you know, he can't assume a form. Mm. His face run. His face keeps running like tallow. Yeah, because he do- he doesn't know. He hasn't got. He hasn't actually got any in. Into Patrick's psyche. Well, that, that's Patrick what hasn't struck got a... me. What does a what does a sociopath have nightmares about? What do, what, what, well, ex- what ex- would ex- draw? You know, yeah. Exactly. So you know, Stephen King kind of cheats it by saying, "Well, he didn't like leeches, so fine, and that's fine." But then, but when, as I say, when Pennywise comes to collect him, mm. Pennywise can't settle on a figure because there's, and so, yeah, it's it's almost as if Hockstetter is a very, very, very tiny it in himself well it's interesting like, that you do have that dichotomy between um i think his name's richard dorsey the the stepfather of the cochran boys yeah and yeah. patrick hockstetter both of whom kill children without the influence of pennywise but both of whom yes. pennywise kind of gets later on there's you know because richard dorsey moves away and tries to restart his life and becomes a born-again christian but he still sees the dead kids coming for him so it's like this idea yeah, that yeah, they're, yeah. they're kind of poaching on his territory. And he says nobody else is killing children in Derry except for me. You know, this is this is my. Yeah, opinion. I think that's right. And also, you know, just whoever you are, whatever you are, it, um, Pennywise will it will have some tendrils into your life at some point. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we're all connected. It's like great expectations. Everyone's connected by crime. Well, in it, <laughs> everyone's connected by Pennywise. And um, 
Well, that's why he's in the sewers. The sewers go everywhere. The sewers connect everybody, you know? Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, by the end of the novel, Bill is kind of drumming at home and going, it, you know, Derry is it. It is Derry. But, um, but yeah, with Richard Corcoran, is that the dad, Richard? Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's obviously but, but a very different character. the name of the from... boy, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. Richard Corcoran, yeah. Um, Richard Corcoran, he, um, you know, he, he, he's a much more tragic character than Patrick because he uh, he actually has, you know, extreme remorse for what he's done to the, to Dorsey. Yeah. And, of course, he did, you know, he didn't kill Eddie, but, um, uh, you know, he's, he's the opposite of Patrick. He's a remorseful uh empathic massively flawed character whereas patrick is just a blank slate uh mm. but um but they both meet the same end well they don't meet the same uh, oh yeah well they do actually he, uh well they, well they both well they yeah, both have the they, same they, 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 but, yeah pennywise doesn't, gets doesn't the end. actually pennywise pennywise leads corcoran to um commit suicide actually he hangs himself I think, um yeah. he hangs himself but 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 yeah he, they, Pennywise is instrumental. That's right. And then, but I was just thinking about Patrick. He, even though Patrick and Pennywise don't kind of um, interface that much for most of the story, I think there's still a suggestion that, um, or more than a suggestion, that Patrick discovers the fridge in which he kills the animals, with a little bit of help from Pennywise. Like it had almost been uh, put there. Yeah, there is a sequence. There is a section I think where it. Um implies that the guy who runs the, the the junkyard just ignores the fridge and you do get the impression that is pennywise's kind of influence on him exactly and there's it always it, to me that always feels a bit like pennywise is playing the um playing the roulette board you know and just putting a few counters here a few counters yeah. there of course he's he's got his main strategies absolutely but he's also got Little counter here. Everything's covered there. If that should happen there, and so he's just always planting seeds. And one of the seeds he plants is that fridge for Patrick. It's an so, interesting way of looking at it. Know. I've never really thought about the idea of Pennywise being like a strategist. You always kind of think of him as just being like this, 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 this killer with with a hunger who toys with the children, needs them. But he does plant these seeds in people like Henry Bowers and um, our Beverly's dad as well. I think he does kind of tip off Beverly's dad that something is happening with the kids and that's what yeah. starts the whole kind well, of well, Yeah, I mean, there's a whole um, kind of... Uh, there's a whole kind of realisation of what it is as the book goes on, and especially in the end game. Mm. But, like, where I think Bev thinks, like, something... She, when she sees her dad sort of inverted speech marks uh sorry speech marks um possessed by pennywise you know or with pennywise's influence driving him she kind of goes oh my god that's what it is it it fills the hollow places of the town it feeds on despair it feeds on neurosis or whatever and she's right so um you know it's uh yeah P pennywise gets in through the cracks really doesn't it that's doesn't interesting he, doesn't yeah. he, he no, I like it. It is. Well. I mean, but you know, I, I, I've never, I've never quite thought of Pennywise as a strategist until talking about this with you. Now, this is why we do this, right? Because <laughs> nobody else will listen but, but, to us when we tell us the, when, we, when we tell them these theories. No, this is the problem. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just it just crystallizes things. But like, um, but the fact that Hochstetter does have his life 
slightly skewed by it, but but that it basically doesn't basically lets Patrick get on with it until Patrick needs to be taken out sure. of the equation. It, it it does seem quite strategic, actually. Yeah, it does. It's very interesting. So we we've talked a lot about the um the kids. But what about the adult characters? I mean, because a lot of the criticism of it, both the films and the books, is that the kids are a lot more interesting than the adult characters. But to me, I, I, think I never find that. It's a matter of perspective. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't really care so much about the adult characters. But now I'm an adult. Yeah, I can really huh. empathize with I, the situations they've kind of got I, themselves into, you know. I have never seen that split in the book. I've, I'm. And, and there's a that one of the big reasons for that is is tied to what I think is a failing of the most recent movies, which is that it's the interplay between the kids and the adults and the way that they and their adult versions, uh, the way that the book is intertwined that makes it so powerful and actually makes it a constant source of fascination for me to jump from the adult selves to the child selves and back again. Because the last movies split the two stories up, I think yeah. they really, really ripped the heart out of the story. And that wasn't the only way in which they did that, by the way, but um, for me. But uh, I think it's crucial. It, it's always about that connecting corridor between the libraries that's what the book is about. And if you don't have that connecting corridor and go back and forth through it constantly, you're missing a lot of the fabric of mm. the story. I never for a moment thought that the adults were less interesting than the kids or vice versa in the book. I mean, what's the way they're introduced, because apart from, apart from Bill, we don't... The first time we see any of the losers, we, see, we, we, we first encounter all of the losers except Bill mm -hmm. as adults. And because each of their stories is so strong, obviously Stan's, that's Stan's final stand, but uh, that's his last gasp. But uh, the, I, I fell in love with the, just chronologically as the book progresses, I fall in love with the adult characters first and then go back and see them as children. That's interesting. You know, you get... You get Ben at the bar. You get Eddie trying to escape from his cloying uh, wife. You get um, Beverly trying to escape from her violent husband. And you know, to, to uh, uh, and I, I love, I love, I, I, you know, I've read the book so many times now, but I love imagining a new reader to it mm. who go, who, who basically first gets a story of, um, you know, this young kid Bill, mm -hmm. then. Uh, get, gets actually the um, we haven't talked about this, but the other the other kind of cold open is the um, the killing at the fairground at the carnival. I was going to get um, to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but 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 that, but then but then you sort of go, okay, where am I with this story? And then what you get is six vignettes mm. about six characters you don't know yet. You, uh, sorry, uh, sorry about five you don't know, and then Bill as an adult, he's the link. That's interesting. So so you're like okay. I, I, yeah, I've got, I've got a. What am I dealing with here? This guy called Richie. This guy called Bill. What is this? And so that's that's your way into the novel is through their adult selves, actually. So I, I, I it always felt so integrated to me, and I, I, it was just so lovely to fall in love with those characters as adults and then go back and see them as kids. That I never questioned, never questioned, the integrity of that device at all. I think one thing I've noticed rereading it recently as an adult is how 
the effect of being a child shaped them as adults. I think when I was a kid, I just kind of read it as they had been charmed and blessed with these successful careers, and then they were called back. But I think reading it as an adult, you do realize they haven't actually gone very far because Ben is still quite a lonely guy. Eddie has essentially married his mother. Beverly essentially has married her father. Uh, Bill is still this kind of this uh, storytelling kind of um, alpha male leading man type. And Richie is essentially playing records and he still dresses like a kid and he still isn't like a a proper adult. And it's like that idea that they're not quite adults themselves. And I think that's enforced by the fact that they don't have children. It's also enforced by the fact that I think all their parents are dead at that point. So they don't have any yeah, I think, generation before them and they don't have a generation after them. They're kind of liminal. They're kind of lost yeah, in space, if you know what I mean. They're, lo- they're, they're lost people, aren't they? Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, there's there's something else interesting that I didn't, that took me a long time to notice, actually, which is <clears throat> obviously Ben is an architect from day one. Hmm. Um, Richie is always a kind of whacker, whacker, whacker. Um, you know, Eddie has a compass in his head and ends up run, yeah. running a limo company yes. in New York. But like, I saw that uh, I, d- I didn't quite notice. Like, uh, there's there's little allusions to everybody's future career and talents, <clears throat> even to Bev. Yeah, uh, well, not even to, but it, but but you know, Bev, Bev is always doing something interesting to the hem of her jeans to tart them up, or to she's done something interesting to a blouse or whatever she's done, and then she goes on. I, I so. I, I like I like how lightly it's done for the most part, mm. and I want to just um, I, I want to go and uh, diss the film a bit more a minute uh, for a moment because it's it's fun it's fun to do that to me because uh, not for the sake of dissing it but to say why it's successful in the book and not in the movie. Mm. Sorry, other way round. Why it's successful in the movie and not in the book? Um, when Stephen King's uh, seeds these characters with what they'll become. It feels like it's done with just the right touch. When the movie, see what I hated in the last movie was that like Henry Bowers, it's not enough for him to be the bully. He has to be the son of the policeman to up the stakes. And I'm like, no, it's just two on the nose. And then, but, and then like it's Stan can't just be a Jewish kid. He has to be the son of a rabbi. So that as if he's like, you know, as if he's got all to play for just to be a Jew. Yeah, exactly. It's doubling down. And, and it, you know, it's typical Hollywood stuff. It's like, it's sort of saying everything has to be really neat and has to be, and has to have super resonance. Well, actually you have to leave some of those holes open or there's nowhere for the story to breathe. And when, it just becomes, it becomes corny. In fact, what they do in the movie is they take all the strong things from the archetypes and then they insist on them so much that they, you know, they, they squash the air out of it. Mm. Of course, Stan doesn't have to be the son of a rabbi. It's it's great that he's not the son of a rabbi. Of course, Bowers doesn't have to be the rebel without a cause child of the local sheriff. No, it's, it's too pat. (laughs) <laughs> and the book, the book, the book is very good at leaving just enough air so as not to be pat. Yeah, I thought um, it was a little um, ham-fisted the way they make uh, Mike. He, he lives, he lives with his grandfather, I think, and they're butchers. And he's got this moment where he has to kill a kill a, a, a cow or something with it. it. It's exactly the same thing. It's like it, someone, a committee of people, has sat down with Hollywood accents and they've said, 
uh, and they've said, we have to see why the stakes are massive for this kid. <laughs> uh, well, 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 actually, we know, the stakes are massive in the book because we believe in the characters. But if, if, you, if, you, if you imbue every character with every last cliche, you do just end up with a bunch of cliches. And unfortunately, the, the bigger, uh, you know, the character who suffered most for that for me in the movies was Mike, who they turned from an incredibly, uh, incredibly important, thoughtful and analytical character in the book into a magical Negro character mm. who's sort of, you know, knows the secrets of superstitious magic and know, knows the key to this all. And, and they, turn him into, they turn him into a ridiculous character in the movie, yeah, whereas actually... a character, particularly in the book, because it's, it's his voice you hear more than anybody else's. Well, yeah, well, it's funny because we haven't even spoken about Bill yet, who's nominally the leader, and, uh, and that, that's fine, but it, it's like that, everyone's so fascinating in it. But, but Mike, Mike's dairy interludes are some of my favourite bits in the book, and I'm betting they're some of yours as well. Agreed. Did you have a particular favourite? Yes, I do. Can I guess what it is? And it's... Fire at the... Yeah, you can. Was it the fire uh, at the black spot? No. Um... Fire at the black spot. It's... It, it, my, my, my actual favourite is, is the first one. Which was... Remind me? It's basically the story of Mike setting out to investigate uh, yeah. the history of the town. Yeah, uh, because what because it it paints everything that's to come, and it, you know he sort of says, you know, what it is it possible for an entire town to be haunted? That's the elevator pitch right there, yeah. Mm. And he says, you know, is it possible for an entire town to be haunted in the way that you know, say, a building or a not, you know, not not just one building or a basketball lot or something, but um, and and then he sort of you know says, I set out to investigate the history of the town. I spoke to old timers. I sat on porches. I drank lemonade. I drank root beer. I drank iced tea. Uh, so and so told me this. A historian told me that. That's my actual favourite. Yeah. And and then it's Black Spot. I think. Um, Black, but story story wise, it's Black Spot. That's the richest one. But but I, at, I, atmosphere. Atmosphere wise and setting out your stall, it's the first interlude for me. They all work really well. That's I, where... It's only on this reread that I actually really um like the last interlude. It's it's quite a short one, but it's about the massacre at the uh the bar. It's my least favourite, and it's the one that I it's the one that it's a bit of a Paul Bunyan. It didn't quite hook me for a long time. Yeah, I know. What you mean. I think going back it's really oddly done and it, it, it kind of brings in a lot of idea of like politics and unionization and this idea that there is status quo in the town that you can't ever mess with which again is it's that's like the black spot is the story of the black spot is the story of the bradley gang that you can't just i i it was the po- it, you know? the pol- yeah the politics i could never quite get my head around in that in that interlude and it's only it's taken me a lot longer to enjoy that interlude and i like it fine but it's the one that I feel most uh, it, it, it least hits the side for me. It's mm. I, I can't I can't quite imagine the uh, politics or society of the old Canuck loggers in the way that I can uh, imagine other societies and um, social structures in the town. Like the one, the black spot one is fantastic. The uh, Mike's dad. Um, Will, isn't it? Will Hanlon. Hanlon. He, um, 
when he talks about as a young army private drinking in the uh, the blind pigs, <clears throat> the blind pigs in town, so cool because you know you might you get drunk as a pig and you might leave blind from the <laughs> from the um, you know bootleg liquor. He talks about drinking with these big Canuck loggers, and I can totally get that. But when we go deeper, when we go another 30 years prior mm. or 40 years prior, and we're talking about their politics, I find it hard to relate to. I, I think for me, it's I, I liked it because it's a big book. It's an epic. It's a massive book. Most people, not most people, but a lot of critics at the time said it was horribly overwritten. But for me, it's one of those books that I could have done with another 500 pages I want to get those little hints of what's been going on, like the first settlers who just disappeared as a colony. And the, I, I like having some. I, I like having some it's stories nice not mystery, tied up. But I really want to know. I really want more of that. But, you know? but do you though? Because so, don't you think that sometimes just a telling line or a, a little kind of flight, kite flying can be more eerie and keep you awake up and give uh, keep you awake longer and give you more of a thrill? And you just 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 you know. A tiny, a tiny detail in something that hints at a bigger horror is is, is Indeed, such a great device. To me, this is the all-you-can-eat buffet. This, this, this book. I want to just gorge myself, even. I, bad I hear you. I mean, <laughs> talking about overwritten. I mean, of course, Stephen King overwrites. The the thing is that when you've got a good Stephen King, you do not care. Mm. You're like you, do, you. You know, it's the voice. It's. We all know that Stephen is not Stephen. Who am I now? It's hard to know what to say. King King sounds too pretentious. <laughs> SK I've said a couple of times, which I never say in real life. Um, that's gonna say. I'm just going to stick with stick with Stephen King here. But um, people know who you're talking. When I'm reading, oh, I know. But it's, how do you address this man? I, 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 I meant to say earlier that I think I said this to you when we both, you know, you asked me to be on this thing, and I said. Uh, you know, I, I, I read lots of literature and I read high and low and everything in between. And as I get older, I tend to read lower because I haven't got the concentration for higher. But that's another story. But um, out of all the authors I've read in my time on planet Earth, I think pound for pound, Stephen King has given me the most unalloyed pleasure. You know, um, he's, he's just he's 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 my he's just such a pleasurable goddamn place to be. And, you know, even what I would call the, you know, the, the lesser Stephen Kings, the bad, the, the not so good ones, the bad Stephen Kings. All right, the bad Stephen King books. I've never been able to get into Lisey's story, and I think uh, Rose Matter is kind of a waste of time. I, I thought the first third of Rose Matter was great, actually. But, um, but, but I mean, I, I, I've read, um, I, I've, I've plowed on with lots of Stephen Kings that I thought were not great, but, even when he's not very good, he's so readable. It's insane. <laughs> a apart from maybe Lisa's story, which is hard work, whichever way you cut it. But um, but he, he like te terrible King is very readable. Like the man has such a talent for page turnery. Um, but anyway, I've gone a little bit off track. Where were we on it? Because oh, Mike Hanlon and his interludes. Uh, yeah, the interludes add so so much again something that none of the film or tv adaptations have ever addressed successfully or tried to and and, and again it rips 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 the heart out of what the story is about and it rips the integration of the story apart to not or it thins it disastrously and like i suppose what i'd really like is and it would you know it would probably not work 
just in the sense that most things don't work. But if it were done right, a proper long mini series of it that could contain all of this stuff, because it to me it is you know, the thickener and the canvas and the backdrop is so integral to the story. And Mike Hanlon is clearly the link to that. And um, it, it, the, inter, the interludes, when I was talking about Derry being a cosy place to be or a, uh, the book being something that I want to kind of crawl into, I'm often thinking of the interludes in particular, really. Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of want to live within that world of intrigue and that, you know, that matrix of um, of history and um, incident and yeah, and it really does define the relationship between the town and Pennywise as well. This is idea that it's magnificent. They kind of, it's part of them, but he's also they need him as well. You know, it's the idea that he's one of them, but he's an outsider. But they still, I don't know. They they they. Yeah. I think it's hinted at that they might even love him in a way. That they do have that yeah, yeah. tragic, horrible and, love story with this with this guy who kind of gives them, in a way, I think, license to do terrible things. Like he's one he's Bradley Gang, or he's urging them to burn down the black spot. He kind of lets them take their prejudices and make them into a fist and say, "Yeah, do it. Just do you it." You can know? sort of see it as a you can sort of see it as the dark side of small town propriety. Mm. You can, you know, if I think of why Derry might love Pennywise, I sort of see the mean side of small town sort of belief systems and hierarchies and etiquette and social. Have you seen Pleasantville? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I know what you I, mean. I watched Pleasantville for the first time recently and I was blown away and it's like instantly in my top 50 movies. I love it. And uh it's 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 that kind of closing ranks and this is the way we do things here and you know status quo nothing will ever change that that's the mean sort of slit-eyed hardened jaw side of small town americana and pennywise maybe gives the pe maybe gives the people of derry a hint of flint and unmovingness well i think that's why it's um, very skillful that it opens with the death of adrian mellon because it does establish Absolutely. you have an outsider coming in who is, it's implied it's almost like a ritual sacrifice that takes, that takes yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. And then you have that cover-up. You have the police, you have the DA, you have everybody putting on a show of doing something. But in reality, all they're doing is finding scapegoats and they're covering it up and they're just pretending like it never happened. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're basically, yeah, it's, it's sort of saying... Yeah, it's it's sort of an allegory. Well, actually, it was based on a true story, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was very closely based to the murder of a homosexual man somewhere. Was it Is Boston? It I forget. Shepherd, uh, Mike, something like that. I, I can't remember where exactly, but I remember the case. I can't remember the name. I, I didn't even know any of that until the film came out and it, I sort of read that actually that sequence was based on a true story. And, you know, Stephen King was outraged by that and wanted to and he put it into it at the last minute mm -hmm. he wanted to to write that story and so it's it, yeah it, i think it speaks to corruption in all society and uh, you know the fact that things are allowed to go on because yeah you don't it, it, we, 
things things happen and there are checks and balances to ensure that that doesn't rock the boat too much and so pennywise as an allegory for the kind of corruption that ensures that power systems stay stable mm. is pretty interesting at that point in the book and that you know that's your first that's also your yeah you're right that's your first introduction to grown-up dairy yeah. to modern dairy and you know and, and and it tells you a lot about the town it's it's uh, it tells you a lot about a supernatural town in a silly monster story and it also tells you a lot about how towns and human societies work and regulate themselves and protect themselves so yeah. you're right dairy uh, sorry pennywise does kind of define and give license to dark things and, and it's true that pennywise isn't the only monster in Derry. Absolutely. He allows yeah. people he allows people to be monsters. It still has its its run of horrible people, but they're just given more license exactly. to just accepted. Which more. but which brings me on to Mr. Keane, who's always described as mm. not the nicest man in Derry, but I've always felt he got quite a bum deal from Stephen King in this book. Uh I, I never quite I, I don't see that Mr. Keane, the pharmacist, is a particularly nasty man. I um when he you know he's the one who tells Eddie, that his aspirator is just a placebo, but I, I kind of always, I feel Mr. King gets a, a bum deal. I, and he's the one who spins the yarn about the Bradley gang yeah. in the third of the Derry interludes, which is, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I like, I like it almost as much as the black spot. I really like that interlude. Works, and one of the things it? I love about it works great. And one of the things I love about it is that it's Mr. King telling it that we are basically being given a story within a story within a story because, um, you know, it's the story of the Bradley gang within it as relayed by an old timer sitting in a back room talking to Mike. And again, it just cements that idea of history and research and thickness and that the, the film and the movie, uh, the TV movie couldn't, couldn't get close to, you know, it's also it, the it's, idea of the truth, isn't it? Cause he, he, he always, Keen tells the truth, which is always a, like a, a very devastating thing to do. So he tells Eddie Good, the truth. Yeah. He tells Mike the truth, even though what right. he's telling them is actually quite subversive and dangerous. And actually, you know, he admits that he was yeah, part of yeah, the Bradley yeah. gang who, who killed these unarmed gangsters, basically. Shot them down God, the it's street. a good book, isn't it? It's everything in there, man. And you're right. And like the fact that Mr. Keane is more than once described as, you know, not the nicest man in Derry and a, a bit of a sourpuss, really, mm. you know, does seem to be suggesting that anyone who tells the truth like that isn't particularly welcomed, you know? Yeah, because it's a town that is able to cover up. It's a town that lies. It's a town that. Is it, able to look the other way. That, yeah, well, again, is able to and sort of has to. Mm. It's a half and half, isn't it? It's it, it, you're right. It, that you know there are kind of supernatural forces prevailing to ensure that silence, but the people are complicit. It's it, they they take they are culpable to that to some extent. And Mister Keane, Mister Keane is a lot franker than mm. most of the townsfolk and hence maybe not the nicest man in Derry. Well, maybe it's okay not to be nice. I really, I really like his character. It rings extremely true to me. Yeah. And uh, maybe he, they love licorice he, whips he, as well. He's got the big jar of licorice whips. Yeah. It always makes me really hungry. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's um, but but you know, just as a classic ghost story structure of having an old timer tell a story in a back room to a younger man, it's it's to an audience of some sort. It's it's really successful that bit. Yeah, I want to um, talk about. Um, and, sorry, carry on. Yeah, you know, just it just reminded me that Eddie's aspirator is another really good motif in the book because um, and, and the more I've over listened to this story or over read it, I've been. I think I told you I've got into this weird habit of um, getting on uh, getting audiobooks of some of my favourite Stephen Kings and sort of listening to them over and over, especially during lockdown. Like if if I'm I learned to ride a bike during lockdown, it's finally. not called silver, but <laughs> yeah, finally. Well, I I know I I learned to ride a bike on the roads. Luckily, I learned to ride a bike when I was a kid, but I never never learned how to do it in a grown-up way so this is my this is my coming back to Derry this is my uh yeah, <laughs> um, <high-hope> silver. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't ride a bike for like 30 years and then I progressed on to pay uh, from pavements to roads and I ride about London now it's been very liberating but um be careful when I do that I tip it thank you I'm doing all right so <laughs> far and um some wood right there and um <laughs> Well, I, I often put on an audio book very quietly. Just it, it sort of concentrates me. So that, so long as it's not uh, it. too loud, mm. and I can listen to it and the stand particularly over and over. I don't need to listen, listen to them, but as background noise, I just like I like that they seep deeper and deeper into me. And um, one of the things that I noticed on my nth listen was just exactly what a clever device the aspirator is, mm. because. Because basically, Mr. Keane's telling Eddie that it's a placebo and that it's only his belief in it that makes it real is an allegory for it. Absolutely. And, I mean, maybe I was late to the party with that one, but it's just impressed me more and more with what a smart device it is. Um, No, I didn't pick that up. That's very good. Yeah. Again, it could be you know once you've seen it, it could be a little close to the nose. But there's so much in this book that it doesn't it doesn't jar. It it just seems like a good device to me. But um, like there are points at which the aspirator is used as a weapon just because Eddie turns that belief mm. and says <clears throat> and says you know what this is my aspirator and it's full of battery acid battery acid. Sure it is. Yeah, it's battery acid. And he turns he magics that nothing into a violent force, which is what it does. Absolutely. It is a it it turns benign things into weapons, and uh, and distorts reality in a malign way. And Eddie does that with his aspirator, and also basically the alchemization of the aspirator from being a placebo to potent medicine has a lot to say about the book. And it's no surprise again that at the end of the book, it's the aspirator that's used to to just, you know, fire down the spider's throat before Bill rips its heart out. No, I like Eddie that has the be- yeah. Eddie, Eddie has the belief part of it sussed, and then Bill has the visceral man's work of pulling the... I didn't really say man's work in a hateful <laughs> way, but you know what I mean. In a, in a, uh, in a stereotyped, uh, you know, I am the alpha male, I pull the heart out, but Eddie actually gets the belief bit sorted mm. with the aspirator. I like the idea, like what you're talking about, the idea of like Derry being a place where belief and reality are actually quite, there's a fine line between them. Because it also goes back to the idea that when they're children, it's established what they're going to be when they grow up. And that is kind of, again, the idea of like a, an aspiration, a belief that becomes reality. 
and they all end up exactly what they anticipated ending up as well, which is also a nice, a nice little wrinkle to it. It's like the idea of, yeah, they can actually will these things into existence because they are touched by this place, this unusual place, whether it's the turtle or whether it's Pennywise. They're both constrained by this idea that belief from reality is a very fine line. But I'd like to just touch on two sequences in the book. Um, first one is we've, we've talked about little the death of Adrian Mellon, and I'm 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 not going to infuriate you too much by defending the film, but I did think it was a little unfair that when the second film came out, it was seen as trivialising slightly by including the death of Adrian Mellon in, in its beginning. I actually sequence. thought the Adrian Mellon bit was really good in the film. Yeah, I think that's kind of a snobbery where people think you can't discuss certain topics in horror films, which it's completely counterintuitive to me because I think often horror is the only way to discuss certain things. And I think that worked really well. It, it didn't shy away from the difficulty of that story. I thought it treated it really quite well, actually. It was one of the much stronger bits of those, in, of those movies. Uh, and it, it was shocking. And they did, and they made it shocking. They did, they didn't, they didn't sugarcoat it. They didn't trivialize it as far as I was concerned. But did you know there was like a critical reaction to it where people said this is this is uh, out of place? I vaguely did, mm. but I think I think it I think it was out of place because I think it deserved it belonged in a better movie. <laughs> I, I I think I, I think I think if the rest of the movie had been good, as good as that, mm. it wouldn't have been out of place. No, I, agree. I think it was out of place. I think it looked out of place because the rest of it was kind of played ironically and for chucks and for. You know, a, a, a lot of it was papered over with modern day irony and self-awareness, which didn't sit well with me. Mm. And um, I think part of that is know, that because it was set in the modern times rather than the 80s, that kind of time shift. I think I think that and I think because they, it was an admit it's kind of a we haven't really got time to do all of this properly. So let's just make, you know, it was a good get out to be quite meta about things sometimes. But um, coming but the point about trans um transcribing the film from the 50s stroke 80s to the 80s stroke present day mm. was a terrible move mm -hmm. i think it lost uh two two major things that that film lost was the integration of the children uh, the interweaving of the children and adult stories which is integral to me mm -hmm. and actually actually taking the movie away from the 50s is another great loss of fabric to me because um, and texture because the film is all about Cold War paranoia and monster movies. Uh, sorry, the book is uh, Cold War paranoia and monster movies and ch uh, America's innocence. The 50s yeah. is America's childhood. Absolutely. The 60s is America's difficult teenage years and the 50s is America's childhood. Yeah, I think, like you say, the film's music it adds so much to that kind of thing because it is infused with that idea of innocence and freedom i thought it was a terrible loss to the film and really probably driven by hey stranger things is pretty hot at the yeah. moment people love the 80s and I, I thought it was a crappy move but um so again the story uh, the adrian mellon story in the movie yeah it it didn't fit with the rest of the film because the film was good enough <laughs> to match it the second sequence we kind of have to uh, talk about is uh, it's become quite infamous now in any discussion about it, is a sequence with um, the children making love after the ritual of Chud in the sewers. And it's it's one of those things, when I was a kid, 
I kind of accepted because I was 12 and I was like, oh, yeah, just having sex like I'm I'm not doing. So that's fine. As an adult, it is a little more I'm a little more squeamish about these things. But I'm a lot more squeamish about that scene. I. But do you think it works as part of the structure? Because I think it does actually work as part of the structure. I don't really, to be honest. I think it's a misstep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I've I've seen people online here and there sort of saying, do you know what, I wanted to recommend this to some kids, but <laughs> I couldn't in a, with a good conscience. And Not because of all the children getting murdered and dying, it's because of the, the sex, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, well, it's not just sex, though, is it? It's six, it's six boys having sex with one girl, and that's pretty lurid yeah um the 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 truth of it is i think it's pretty much a misfire Mm -hmm. i don't think it's needed Mm -hmm. and i also think sadly it's i don't it wouldn't stop me recommending the book to anyone because i think it's inane actually and i think i think it's an i think it honestly think it's an embarrassment of a few pages it's utterly superfluous i'll I'll agree yeah i mean i i I don't. I just don't understand why it's in there. Actually, <laughs> I think my, 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 like what I wouldn't ever rip out is the very strange and unnerving sexual tension between Bev and her dad. Yeah, that's which creepy is as you know which yeah. is that that's creepy. But it but it, but that has something to say within the book, and that has something to say about some people's uh, well about about being human and living in a family and and about. It has something to say about the dark side of family life. The the thing with the kids just seems outre in a bad way. Um, mm. I, I would I would happily lose it, although I'm not a revisionist. I wouldn't want. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I agree. I wouldn't yeah. ever want it to. I wouldn't want it to be taken out of future public uh, publication. I mean, if Stephen King, if it came from SK himself, that's his call. But I'd rather it were there just because I'm kind of quite fierce about original documentation, uh, uh, preserving original work, but no, I, agree. I don't like it. Yeah, I, I, I think I it's, cra- it's um, I think it's crass. It kind of, I wouldn't say it worked for me. I can kind of understand why it's in there because you do need that bonding thing, but I think that's already covered by the cutting of the palms. It's They already have kind of the idea of a, a ritual that bonds them together. And there's no kind of they're bringing a sexual element into it. It seems like it's already. I, I suppose it's like saying, "Okay, their childhood is over," so they're kind of pointing their way towards adulthood. But it's still too young. Mm. It's still too creepy. And it, it's, it, it's it's too it's like too you say, young, a too garish. Yeah, it it is. Uh, you, I guess you can. I'll meet you as far as to say I I agree. I can see why why he thought it should be there, but. Mm. Nah, <laughs> I, I would. I, I, it, it, it's mm, it, it, again. It's just not. It, it's it's not deep or skillful enough to bother me beyond it being a bit of bad writing. But it is a bit of bad writing. <laughs> Fair enough. But to me, it, it it's a it's it's not comparative in terms of um, content. But when you read the stand, the bits with the kid and trash can man, I always find them a bit off-putting and i never really kind of gel with them to me that always seems I, I, like it's I, going probably a little too far um well that's kind of why it was good that they were cut from the original but 
um, the original publication. But I, it's I, interesting that he can edit, but he didn't edit that. You know, <laughs> it, well, it, it what in it? Yeah, yeah. Well, who knows what other scenes? What, <laughs> who knows what other scenes were on the cutting room floor? But um, that, but no, I um, it, it's again like the the bit with the kid in the stand is like a it's very cartoonish but mm. it's an enjoyable cartoon at least but um but also when i when i read it i kind of i read it i hold it in a different place in my head i go this is just an this is just a nice little snack it's not really in the book because it wasn't in the original one so i can enjoy it without yeah. being too roughed up by it uh, or too annoyed by it but it, it, it you know it's I wonder if it, if if the bit with the kid had been in the original seventies publication, if it would stand out as much. I, I kind of still think it would, but another part of me goes, "Well, you just accept it because you would have known it from the get go." Sure, yeah, like you say, it is quite an anomalous to the rest of the book because it is, it's not really anything to do with the virus or anything like that, or people getting anywhere. It's just like here's a weird guy he meets on the road. You know, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, but that's cool. That that's no, it doesn't. But it. It's just it, I, I find it an I find it an entertaining digression, but it the, the, let's face it, the kid is well. Actually, it is quite interesting. The kid is like he's described as the avatar of every sort of badass punk. His car is the avatar of <laughs> the American the American you know love affair with automobiles. So he he's trying he's trying to make him stand for something, but it's sort it's sort of ludicrous in a it, it, it's ludicrous. Okay. Um- Time is getting away from us, I'm afraid, but I, I do have a few more questions to ask. Are you okay to hang on? I'm, I'm here as long as you want. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, firstly, it's uh, it's uh, it's the 1980s. Uh, Andy Stanton is is living in uh, North London, but he's he's going to uh-huh. but he's going to Derry in Maine, and uh, he's wandering the streets alone. What form does Pennywise take to uh, to try and get him? Oh my goodness. Um... That's a very good question. <laughs> <God. laughs> this is now. This you were utterly fearless as a child. There was no. Uh... No, no, no. The opposite. <laughs> but as Stephen King again says in it, adults' fears are much more nebulous and abstract, mm. and that's why that's why Pennywise preys on children because they're. That's one of the reasons because their fears can be instantly summed up in a face or a form. I'd probably it would probably be the shark, to be honest. Uh, yeah. The shark that the kid, the young kid on the skateboard, says that a friend of his saw. I, I, it would be Jaws. Fair enough. No, I get that absolutely. That's terrifying. Uh, and I love Jaws, but it would be Jaws, <laughs> and it would be it would be in the canal. Again, that's, that's another one of the things where the less you see of it, the better. You know, the idea of the menace. And it's also the idea of like the, the the town covering everything up as well. Amity Island and Derry, I think, are quite similar in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just ignore you. Ignore your problems and just get the tourists in. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I have to ask you though, what would your it be that in, in, your your twelve year old self? Um, well, it's 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 very apropos for it, but I've I've never liked spiders very much. But I find that uh. it's one of those <laughs> things where it's like I, because the weather's been so nice past couple of days, we've been clearing out the the summer house slash shed, and my wife said to me. Uh, Oh, can you clear out the shed? I saw a spider in there, and it was massive. And it, uh, it was one of those ones with the, the bodies as big as the legs, and the legs were as thick as your fingers. Yeah, yeah. And, and I kind of went in there, and it, it wasn't that frightening. It was just a spider. So it's it's nice to know you can actually overcome these things, and it is you know, it, it you can 
and the idea that fear itself is actually more frightening because I was picturing like a tarantula and it's a garden spider and you kind of think well yeah but it's... you would have seen so you would have seen a bunch of tarantulas when you were a kid do you think have you ever seen something wicked this way comes I haven't seen it but I've read it there were yeah the, the same sequence where the tarantulas invade the house in the film there's a I really remember that. creepy version of that with actual tarantulas and that really shook me up as a it, this is the version, a film of the Bradbury book. Yeah, um, it was. Is it? Oh, uh, eighty-six, probably the same year as it actually, and it was made by I, I, when they were trying to do like slightly darker fare. Ah, I don't remember the tarantulas from the book, but I'll take your word for it. I think that's what I, I reckon. I would either. But oh, by the way, I, that's reminded me of one of my other favourite sequences from the book, which is uh, Mrs. Kirsch. Oh yeah. That was creepy as hell. Oh my goodness, that's a good sequence. I love that's... that. It goes so it goes actually so from cozy to absolutely unnerving, so subtly uh, and so well. And it go and it, it dives straight into European fairy tale and Brothers Grimm because she she she's a connection between the old country and America mm. because uh, you know she sort of says my father came over from I think Germany or Poland or Austria or somewhere and. You know, she talk and she starts. Uh, she she has this kind of old European voice that becomes more and more pronounced. And you're 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 delving right back to the forests and to the folklore and to the obviously the house in the woods and the witch. And again, again it's just archetypes, uh, isn't it? Yeah, archetypes. And Stephen Stephen King going, "Don't worry, I know where all this stuff comes from." I uh, you know, and I'm just go- I'm kind of gonna. I'm going to, kind of going to play the scales here, you know. It's interesting. Show my workings. It's great. If we look at this in terms of like King's career, that you have this book in '86 with all these horror icons, all these folk tales, yeah. all this big horror imagery and archetypes, and he follows this um, with three books that are completely different. Uh, so you have Tommy, right. the Tommyknockers, which is science fiction. Uh, you have yep. Eyes of the Dragon. Did you know that one? Yep. Which is a very oh, yeah. straight kind of fantasy novel. And there's another... It's a one. children's novel, really. Oh, exactly, yeah. And I think Misery as well, which comes out, which is a horror novel, but it's a very real psychological novel. And there's nothing supernatural about Annie. Yeah. Will. She is a real flesh and blood person, but she's yeah, just Yeah, 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 it's a bot- it's a It's a bottle episode, really, Misery, isn't it? Very but, much, um, yeah. So I like the idea that he's uh, writing this great supernatural the great supernatural novel and then is able yeah, to yeah. move on and kind of well really do again you know for you know being a writer myself and having met lots of writers in the last 15 years since that's been my career mm. i've always been so happy to discover how many writers rate my guy you know absolutely because we because like uh, again, I, there's no one who would argue that Stephen King is the most elegant or best stylist, at least of all himself. But his uh, his uh, ability to write character situation and get you in in the first five pages is incredible. And to, uh, um, but sorry to address what you're talking Please. about. The, the the guy can uh, another one of his massive strengths is the guy can write. You know, he's not afraid to turn his hand to anything from a close psychological study to an absolute panoramic historical account of a 
town and a society and it he can go from the micro to the macro and either uh I, i'm always you know it it's a much overlooked skill to be able to handle as many realities as Stephen King does, even within it, you know, the police procedural mm. of the death of Adrian Mellon, it, it, you, it rings true. He, 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 write, he writes about anyone in any profession or any situation or any fantasy world, and he writes convincingly. And he just, if that were me, I'd just be like, oh, I can't do the police bit because I don't really know how the police would talk and it would come out overboiled, but he handles it great. But yeah, um, so the next three books, the Tommy Knockers, which I don't think you like it so much. I really like it. It's one of those ones I'm um, going to come back to because the I, more I think I love about it, 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 the more I kind of think, oh, actually, no, I quite like that. And then I, I, often, uh, I often confuse it with Dreamcatcher, which I didn't really like. Oh, I don't like Dreamcatcher, but Tommy Knockers is, I think that's an interesting one because it's the one, I think it's the one just after he came off drugs or it, it, I, I, or just as he was coming off drugs. And yeah. it's basically, it's the large, the last splurge of writing manic, overboiled kind of drug-driven stuff, or it's the come down from that. Mm. And it, it's this, it's, it's like, it's almost, it's so dense that book. It's almost like a, gives you itchy eyes just to think about it but <clears throat> I, I i love it kind of slightly because of that i think it's a really fur uh is fervid the word i want yeah probably i, I, I can i can fervent, dig it. Yeah. fervent it's a really fervent fecund book and there's something gross and sort of ob not quite obscene gross and gross and fecund about it that i love and it's interesting it's also quite a lot it's like grotesque because it's the idea of like this this thing from space that's buried under the earth that is kind of affecting the people yeah. around it as well. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it, it's got the uh, motif of an entire small town, uh, sort of within the thrall of something, as has needful things, you know. Mm, and uh, and both of these are much lesser books, but uh, and needful things is is kind of where the wheels start to come off for me for a few years but um I, I like the book i like the book but it's kind of a it's sort of a child's first king really <laughs> again it's, um, i think it's, idea it's like he had to write one more castle rock book because again after oh sure after but, needful things you do get more experimental books i think you get gerald's game and rose oh, Madder. And i oh, love yeah, gerald's yeah. game that, that, fascinating book i i have to revisit gerald's game but i yeah and then he gets on to writing about women and i sometimes think kind of trying to redress the fact that he women were often kind of just monsters in a lot of his earlier books or or just underrepresented or both but um yeah there's there's loads of other fascinating stuff or just the you know the eras of king to talk about but but uh in terms of yeah, what what he wrote next was, as you say, very different. I think when I think about it versus the stand, mm. I think there's a, it's somewhat the difference for me between you know they're both my favourites, and um, it's somewhat the difference for me between Close Encounters and ET, where the stand is in some ways the harder, more biting sociological 
grown-up version. Well, it's the end of the world, isn't it? And that's uh, the end of everything. Well, well, sure, but it, but it's the it's 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 the style of it and the kind of veracity of it. Whereas whereas it is brilliant in a different way. It has a warmth and a sentimentality that brings it together in the way again close encounters versus et but uh, yeah i think they're very which different takes genres aren't they because the stand is essentially lord of the rings it's a journey book it's getting from how do we get from here to there but it is more in the tradition of something like our town or something like that where it's a, a dissection of life in a very enclosed community well, that 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 would make that's exactly close encounters in ET again. Mm. Richard Dreyfus has to go on this quest, whereas ET is set within this town and what it does to the town. But, um, but yeah, I just think I think that if you look at 70, 70s King, it's really quite hard boiled in a seventies way. Oh yeah, and like the fact Randall in a great way, it, like Randall Flag being called Randall Flag, it just it seems really of its time. It seems like on the back of the social upheaval of the sixties. And the kind of the burning flag sort of being carried forward into the seventies, quite an uncertain time. Uh, but by the eighties, we're getting into this kind of, for all its terror, we're getting more into it. You know, the eighties. Another thing about the it is that the eighties were all about hearkening back to the fifties. Mm. Um, you know, uh, po- um, jitterbug dancing was back, and polka dots were back, and there were lots of films that hearkened back to the fifties. Absolutely, and King. So, so, so you know, eight is King. At the zenith is it, and it's it's got a softer cushion around it than his seventies writing, and it's none. Uh, it's you know none the worse for that. It's just a different kind of. It's a different kind of hand he's holding you in at that point. It's interesting. I think you can definitely. I think there is definitely a case to be made for the stand being quite a that archetypal essential novel of the 1970s and it being that equivalent exactly. to the 1980s. Uh, it, the, the, stand is, uh, the stand is a ragged, uh, a more ragged and closer to the bone thing. And all that, you know, the military stuff and the obviously the plague stuff, but uh, <clears throat> the warfare stuff. And um, Yeah, it's, 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 it's very much informed by Vietnam and the Kent State shooting, this idea it, of it's, it's, things breaking it's down. Grain- you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's grainier. Mm. It's it's grainier, and then and then it is shot in kind of warmer twilight magic hour light. Absolutely. So uh, before we let you go, Andy, a couple of more questions. Firstly, what book are you reading at the moment? I am reading. I'm cheating. I'm listening to. On I seem to be in an audiobook phase, um, <clears throat> but I, I listen very closely. So it's just like reading. I'm listening to. I'm on a Steinbeck jag. Nice. I I love John Steinbeck and I don't know nearly enough of his books and I just finished East of Eden which was I I, I think the man's genius and I um have you read Tortilla Flat No I have not read that one no It is funny as all get out it is uh, I think it was the book that's what so that's what I'm reading stroke listening to at the moment I'm 20 minutes from the end uh, I'm delighted to get back to that after <laughs> this and uh, I uh, but I'm delighted to have a little break for that for this and um, it is kind of like it, it's one of the funniest books I've ever read it's extremely dry extremely droll and it's a little social comedy for um, infused with poignancy but very very dry and funny as well almost like winnie the pooh but with 
with humans. It's magnificent. It's interesting. Something you said earlier keeps on running through my mind and Steinbeck's related as well, because he talked about the idea that King is able to switch genres and switch styles and switch short stories for novels. And I was trying to think of any other writer who had the same kind of capacity for doing that. I think Steinbeck is certainly up there, but I couldn't really think of anybody else who has that that breadth. That I don't kind know of that range. Steinbeck. I don't. I don't know that Steinbeck is up there. I. I mean, not it, well in in that ter- in terms of what who he writes about. He's very committed. Well, actually, I'll tell you what is analogous between Steinbeck and King, which is that they. Uh, there you go. I just called him King, and it made it sound good because <laughs> I was talking about Steinbeck and King. It sounds literary, uh, like literary, but. Um, they they both they both claim a part of the country and obsess over it and make it theirs. Good point. And for Steinbeck, it's California and Monterey, and Salinas, the Salinas Valley. And for King, obviously, it's Maine. Mm. It doesn't mean they can't go other places because the actually the one I read, or uh, after East of Eden was um, Steinbeck's last great novel, apparently, which was uh, The Winter of Our Discontent, and that is set in New England. Mm-hmm. And of course, King over time has gotten away from Maine. But basically, they are both people who have, they're both writers who have claimed a part of the country as Steinbeck country, King country. And oh, that's fascinating. I never really thought about it in those terms. Mm. Yes, yeah, so William Faulkner and, um, was it Yoknopatoka County? And he says all his books there, oh. you really get the idea that, uh, do you read, have you, do you read Have you been drinking? Yeah, a little bit, that's fine. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's um, I've, I've only re- been drinking. Uh, so so that's a yes um i've um uh, i've only read the sound and the fury and uh, it's hard work and i liked it very much but i'd need to revisit it absolutely absolutely no i don't know much about faulkner read that one that's incredible um secondly uh can you recommend a book to our listeners that you think is maybe a little underrated maybe slipped under people's radar maybe should be read more yeah i think um do you know your love by catherine no, I'm not going to recommend we, we my own marvellous well. Mr. Gum books for children. Um, <laughs> children and parents love them. Um, uh, have you read Geek Love by Catherine Dunn? I've heard of it. I haven't read that one. Good. Bloody magnificent stuff. Ah, beautiful. Okay. Beautiful, twisted, literary and wonderful. I'd also recommend, seeing as we're here, um, a very beautiful book, completely unrelated to... Uh, plot and horror and anything like that which is um the furies by janet hobhouse which i need to reread but it's a beautiful beautiful book okay. the furies by janet hobhouse and that's a very literary book about feelings and growing up and mothers and stuff it's very good sounds good so uh, since you did already bring up your um fascinating and successful literary career can you tell us if you've got any projects in the go anything you want to promote any any more mr gun books well, I meant to be writing children's books, but I seem to have come to a crashing halt. <laughs> I am um, I'm working on a podcast with a friend of mine in LA, uh, which is a comedy podcast. At... Good God! <laughs> shark, sorry, another shark yeah, in the yeah, tank. Yeah. That's what I need. Honestly, <laughs> not the, the shark in the tank, but um, I'm working. Oh, I see. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, it, it will be a sprat at best. But um, <laughs> no, it's a com- It's a comedy podcast. <clears throat> it's not for children per se and that that's been occupying me over lockdown i keep wanting to get back to writing and i just can't quite rouse myself but maybe i will i spoke to a lot of writers during the course of doing this and it's been great because i've been able to interview a lot of people because of lockdown but a lot of them say that it doesn't actually change their 
creative schedules at all. Like you think you're going to do a lot more, but you really don't. So I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Uh, what's the name of the podcast? <laughs> well, it, uh, yeah, it, it will be called the Tumblers Willy podcast. <laughs> okay. And uh, you'll and uh, you'll you'll have to figure out why when you listen to it. But I can't wait to see the logo. <laughs> Uh, this will come out. This will come out. Uh, March, April, May the first, May Day. Uh, oh, okay. We won't be out by then, but we've got to edit these things. We've but the tum. Let's set, let's let's put let's promote forward. Yeah. The the Tumblers Willy podcast with me and my friend Andy Bobro, who is a TV writer uh, in LA, and he he wrote on Community and on The Last Man on Earth, and he used to write on Malcolm in the Middle. So we've been having fun. Uh, making this absolute nonsense world for the last uh, few months. I I assume the first episode is going to be explaining the title. The title is never quite... (laughs) uh, I'm not going to say much. It's it's not really explained, no. Okay. Not really really explained. It's more more evocative than than explained. It's the the notes you don't play, Richard. (laughs) Well, I I could stay at home and listen to those. That's fine. Um, so thank you very much Andy it's been an absolute pleasure having you on to discuss it it's been a wonderful discussion and um, you know I I, I hate to be presumptuous but would you like to come back again and maybe I don't know discuss the film adaptations on their own or maybe a different novel we would certainly love to have you yeah I'd love to come back and discuss some more King it's been a real pleasure you know as you have noticed I like to talk so I'd, (laughs) I'd definitely like to come back thank you for having me We loved having you. Take care, Andy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Constant Reader podcast, hosted by me, Richard Shepard. Don't forget to rate, review, like, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and any other podcatcher you may use. And uh, with thanks to Stephen Parks for his production skills. And thank you very much. (laughs) 